When Grace was in first grade, she'd be walking down the street. And as she was going, she'd look at the reflections in store windows. I'd be like, hey, there's a Chinese girl there. And I'd be like, oh, wait, that's me. Because I would (laughs) forget that I was Asian. It was so, there was nobody that looked like me anywhere. There was nobody that looked like me on TV. There was nobody that looked like me at school. There was nobody that looked like me in magazines. Uh, So it was really easy to forget in a lot of ways. Grace's parents immigrated to the United States from Taiwan in 1969, back before Grace and her two sisters were born. And like a lot of first-generation kids, Grace didn't think much about where her parents came from, or she tried not to. These days, Grace Lynn is a children's book author and illustrator. She does picture books and novels. One of those novels is called Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. It's meant for 8- to 12-year-olds. But my six-year-old daughter was mesmerized by it. I think a lot of the words in the story must have gone over her head. But I I think she was so into it because of Grace's full-color illustrations. You know, it's it's unusual to find full-color pictures in novels, even for kids. And these pictures, these pictures that Grace made, they are stunning. They've got intricate lines. They've got bold, flat colors, bright patterns. And these paintings... They are clearly influenced by Chinese art. So is all of Grace's work. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hilary Frank. Today on the show, one woman's journey from hating her parents' culture to making her living by embracing it, all while trying not to feel like an imposter. Grace grew up in a small town in upstate New York. Her family was one of the only minority families in town. Grace and her sisters were the only Asian kids in school. And they did what a lot of outsiders do. Most of the time, we just tried to blend in. Uh, My parents only spoke to us in English at the house, so we never learned Chinese. Um, My father would see what kind of cars the neighbors would drive, and he would go out and buy the exact same cars. You know, we were all trying very hard to blend in. There was good reason Grace could completely forget she was Asian. At school, nobody really mentioned it. But then, if they did... The teacher would kind of, like, quiet it immediately. It was almost like everyone was pretending that I wasn't Asian. And it really gave me a really weird feeling. Like, it was something I should be ashamed of. Like, I felt like there was this big secret uh, that I was Asian. And it was like, there was something wrong with me, but nobody should talk about it. Do you remember feeling like you looked different from other people? Well, yeah, I knew it. I mean, it was such a obvious thing. I was, I looked so different from everyone. Um, and it would always come out in very awkward ways. Um, my uh, fifth grade class decided to put on the play uh, Return to Oz. And all the girls wanted to be Dorothy, and I really wanted to be Dorothy too. And we'd all like stand out in the playground at recess, and we'd all sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, practicing and practicing. And then finally, on the day of the audition... I turned to the girl next to me and I said, oh, today's the audition. Do you think they might choose me to be Dorothy? And she looked at me and she said, but but you can't be Dorothy. Dorothy's not Chinese. And I remember feeling so stupid, like so dumb. I wasn't angry. I was just, it was more like, she's so right. Dorothy would never be Chinese. It's so stupid. Grace didn't feel Chinese because... She identified with all the white girls in classic American movies and books. 
there's two kinds of books that I loved growing up. Um, mainly uh, the very, I guess you call them like friendship books, kind of like Betsy Tatesy, Bees for Betsy, um, Anne of Green Gables, like, uh, like girls that you would just want to be your friends. And then the other kind of books that I really loved were like the fairy tale books. Um, you know, uh, with beautiful illustrations and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. Uh, so very romantic. I guess that's why Anne of Green Gables is kind of like my favorite character of, of literary fiction, because she's kind of like your friend, but she's also got this like very romantic side, which I think um, is kind of like me. <laughs> How old were you when you knew you wanted to be an author? Um, I think I knew I wanted to be an author when I was in sixth grade. There was a book contest. I decided to do uh, write about a civilization of flowers and like the story about uh, this flower, this dandelion that goes on this great journey with with the wind and things like that. Very like melodramatic and and it's very romantic. Um, and I wrote and illustrated a book and I sent it in and I did not win first place. But I did win fourth place. And with fourth place, I won $1,000. Wow. It was amazing. And I was so excited. And after that, <laughs> I was like, I want to be an author and illustrator forever. <laughs> <laughs> because I'll be rich. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, you can make money with writing a book. So uh, that's when I what realized. What did you do with the $1,000? You know, it was um, it was actually a scholarship in my mom, but in, in, like for college. So typical, yeah. like, like, immigrant parent, like, we will save this for college. <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell me about um, the characters that you would create when you were writing books as a kid? What did they look like? So, so all my characters um, were usually beautiful princesses <laughs> or, or normal, like pretty girls like Dorothy, but they were always, you know, they never looked like me. I never, I never wrote about a minority character. I never wrote about anyone Asian and I never wrote about myself. I never wrote a character that looked like me because I never believed that anyone who looked like me could be a main character in a story. It just never occurred to me because I'd never seen it. Did you wish there were stories about Asian girls? Um, yes and no. It's kind of like a wish that I didn't even know I had. I just assumed that that was the way it was. And it never even occurred to me to wish for it until I was older. And I thought, why Why wasn't there? I wish there had been. Did your parents talk to you about your Asian heritage? Um, they tried. Well, I think in the very beginning, uh, they didn't. And then as I got older, they tried. But by the time they they realized how much I disliked being Asian. It was almost too late. Like my mom uh, tried to teach us how to speak Chinese. She'd like do all these uh, Chinese culture things for us. And she'd like buy me Chinese clothes. Like what? What, what did she buy you? Well, I remember for Christmas, I asked for a China doll, you know, but I was thinking Little House on the Prairie, you know, they have those dolls with the porcelain heads and they called them a China doll. And my mom was so happy when I asked for this and I didn't really understand, but she said, oh, great. And then Christmas came and I opened the present and it was a Chinese doll that she had bought, you know, that she had specially ordered from, from China. And it was like this Chinese doll. And I was so disappointed. And I remember her looking at me and she's like, what, isn't that what you wanted? And I said, no, I asked for a China doll. She's like, it is from 
it is China, a, a China doll. I even ordered it, especially from China. I remember her saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. And I was angry, too, because I felt like she got it so wrong. And here she was trying to make me Asian again, and I didn't want to be. I remember that very vividly. And I feel a lot of guilt about that now. Grace and her mom didn't talk about it too much. But Grace is pretty sure her mom must have been upset that Grace didn't want anything to do with Asian culture. And so uh, I think she thought, if she's ever going to learn anything about our culture... I'm going to have to sneak it in. So she looked at me and she saw that I loved books and she saw that I loved fairy tale books. So she went out and she got about six to 12 Chinese fairy tale books and she put them on the bookshelf in the living room. She didn't give them to me because she knew if she gave them to me, I'd just be like, oh, you just want me to read them because they're Chinese. Forget it. So she didn't give them to me. She just left them on the living room shelf and let me find them and hopefully read them. And uh, she was right because uh, she was very sneaky and uh, because I did find them and I did eventually end up reading every single one of them. There were stories of heroes and tricksters, lots of messages about self-sacrifice. Grace immersed herself in these books, but... I really didn't like them. I thought like, oh, uh, they had been translated from... Chinese to English. So the translation was really rough. And the illustrations were like these kind of plain black and white, like kind of cartoony illustrations. And like I was reading all these beautiful, like illustrated classics, you know, Edmund Dulac illustrations of like Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. And then I was seeing these plain black and white illustrations of these Chinese fairy tale books that were just paperbacks and cheap, cheap paper. And I remember thinking, uh, these aren't very special. Turns out those stories made a bigger impression on Grace than she realized. More on that when we come back. Stay with us. We're back with children's book author and illustrator Grace Lynn. Grace knew since she was a kid that she wanted to make fairy tales. So she went to art school where she learned you don't get to paint princesses right away. You paint a lot of fruit. Uh, you, you draw a lot of still lives. I remember like there'd be a still life of a vase and we would paint this for like months <laughs> and months. And I remember thinking like, how is this really helping me become the illustrator that I want to be? You know, like, oh, this isn't going to help me draw the Sleeping Beauty at all. But Grace stuck with it. She did all the drawing exercises, all the shading exercises, all the color exercises, you know, lots of classical training. She even decided to do an intense year abroad in Rome. Because I thought, wow, I could learn how to paint like Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. And at first, she loved it. Um, but the longer I was there, uh, the more I felt really strange being there. And the first thing that everybody would ask me, like nobody thought I was American. You know, they all like, oh, are you Japanese? Are you Chinese? Are you? Um, and I remember the big turning point for me was um, one day... I was sitting at a cafe with one of my homestay family. You have like a, a family, and one, with, one was a boy. And he was um, asking me questions. We were talking in Italian. And he said, okay, so you're American. Your parents um, moved from Taiwan to the United States. Why? And it was at that moment I realized that I did not know the answer. 
I realized that here I was in Rome, Italy, having this conversation in Italian, and I could not speak one word of my parents' native tongue. Um, here I was in Rome, Italy, and I could tell him how long it took to paint the Sistine Chapel. I could tell him how ancient Italians dyed their hair. I could tell him all these obscure facts about Italian culture. Um, but I could not tell him why my own parents immigrated to the United States of America. And that made me feel really strange. Um, it was kind of like the... It was kind of like the the seed breaking right there. Like, I remember that moment, that weird seed breaking where you're like, wait a minute, how come I know so little about myself? You know, in going to art school and going to Rome, like, we are ta- we talk about being an artist, you know, and uh, and how to be an artist and why are you an artist? And you should really be an artist because you have something, something of yourself that you want to share with the world. And at that moment, I realized, well, how can I share anything of myself with the world when I had never even looked at myself? So Grace comes back from Rome in a full-on identity crisis. She keeps trying to change her art somehow, like, like to make it more meaningful, she keeps doing these paintings of an Asian girl in Italy. The girl's always looking for something. You know, it was such a uh, a heavy-handed metaphor of like me trying to look for myself in Rome. And I started thinking, you know, I should look at some Asian art, you know. I looked at, um, you know, bamboo brush paintings. I looked at all the very classics. But the art that really, really connected with me was this Chinese folk art. It was like these very bright colors, um, very um, flat, lots of patterns, um, no perspective. And I had been looking and looking at that Chinese folk art. And, you know, I just said, you know, I'm just going to paint something that um, doesn't make people, you know, I think up to that point, I, I really liked when people said, oh, that's a great drawing. You know, that's really great. You know, I I think for a lot of the time, uh, I, I was looking for praise. Uh, so I thought, you know, I'm going to paint something that nobody has to look at, that doesn't have to prove that I'm a good artist. And I'm going to just paint something that matters to me. Grace was like, okay, what matters to me? Like, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow morning, what would I do with my last night on earth? Would I go to... England and try to see the queen, you know, like all these crazy things. Uh, would I bungee jump off the Empire State Building, you know? And in the end, I was like, no, really, if I was going to do anything, if I knew, really knew I was going to die tomorrow, I would just go home tonight and try to have like a really nice t- evening and dinner with my family. And so I said, I guess that means that my family is really important to me. And so I said, okay, I'll paint my family and I'll paint it in this kind of, you know, um, and I'll paint it in this folk art, folk, folk art style and see what happens. And nobody has to look at it. And so I painted that picture. And after I painted it, I was like, you know, it felt really good. It felt really good. And I remember thinking, yes, this is the way I want to paint. Because um, I felt like nobody else in the world would have painted this picture. It wasn't a picture where people would be like, oh, 
that's so great. Nobody would say, oh my gosh, that's the best painting in the world. It, it definitely wasn't um, a painting that would inspire awe, but it was definitely a painting that was my own. Grace started thinking about those black and white Chinese fairy tales, you know, the ones that her sneaky mom had left out for her when she was a kid. Grace realized those stories weren't as boring as she had thought. They were actually full of adventure and magic, and good things always happened to good people in the end. You know, all the stuff that Grace loved about Cinderella and Snow White. It's just those little Chinese books with bad English translations, they weren't really made to appeal to American girls. So Grace decided that's what she would do. She'd reinvent the stories from her parents' culture and make them fun for her 10-year-old self. And she'd illustrate them with her newfound Chinese painting style. And did you, um, at that point, also go to your parents and ask to hear more of their story and their history? A little bit, but not um, not as much as you would think. Um, I think it was hard to... You know, after your your whole lifetime of pretending you didn't care, to suddenly be like, "Oh, I do care." And even when I remember, like coming back from from college, asking subtly, like, "So why did you c- c- move to to the United States?" And it's like, "Oh, because it's better here." You know, and like just kind yeah. of, you know, like, "Oh, well, why is it better here?" Like, "Because it's America." You know, like, <laughs> do you think it's because it was too hard for them to talk about, or because like they sensed from you that you had some embarrassment about it? You know, I think it's just, I don't. I think it's just the culture. I do think that. A lot of my friends that are Asian, it's a very similar thing. Um, you know, they we don't in Asian culture. You know, we don't really say "I love you." We don't really talk about um, things. It's mostly like actions. You know, like the way they they say "I love you" is by giving you you know extra rice. You know, like and telling you to eat. You know, like you don't talk about you don't talk about the way you feel. You don't talk about things. So. Um, and I think that's a shame because those are the things that we lose if we don't try to talk about them, which is another reason why I do my books. I think the biggest kind of my very first book, my very first book that was published was a story about my um, my own childhood memory. Uh, it's called The Ugly Vegetables, and it's about how my mom would grow Chinese vegetables in her garden while everybody else in the neighborhood would grow flowers. And I used to be really, really embarrassed. And um, I wrote that into a story, and that became my very first book. And after I wrote that book, um, I really wanted to write like a follow-up to that book. And uh, that's when I started talking to my mom, like point blankly about things and getting stories from her. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, they only really started sharing stories when when I started writing books because they felt like um, oh oh you might use this for a book okay I'll tell you like now my my parents like they like collect the <laughs> stories like oh I got a story from grandma that you could use actually pretty much all of Grace's older relatives have given her material at this point in Grace's book Dumpling Days there's a story she got from one of her aunts about how she wasn't allowed out of her bedroom on her wedding day because of a superstition which the aunt says was terrible because she really needed the bathroom. So at this point, Grace has fully embraced her heritage. Her book, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, reads like a Chinese Wizard of Oz with a girl who sets out to meet a mystical old man. But instead of a scarecrow, a tin man, and a lion on a yellow brick road, this girl, Min Lee, climbs a mountain 
and she meets a couple of twins, a talking goldfish, and a dragon who can't fly. In a minute, Grace tries to incorporate Asian culture into her daughter's life without sounding preachy. Don't go away. (laughs) We're back with author and illustrator Grace Lynn. So Grace has had a ton of success with her books based on Asian culture and her family's history. She's made more than $1,000 from her work at this point, and she's won a Newbery honor. These days, Grace has a family of her own, a husband who's not Asian, he's white, and they've got a daughter named Hazel. She's four. Grace remembers being so excited to read Hazel, Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. Back in art school, Grace had been taught that this book, this book is the pinnacle of children's literature. Like we all put that like on the altar of children's literature as the most amazing book ever. And I remember ringing that, ringing that out to my daughter, and she like took one look at it, and she like threw it on the floor. She's like, "No, <laughs> that book is boring," <laughs> and she hadn't even read it or anything. Like, it, it's so so. Uh, it's been really interesting for me to see, like, you know, form versus function. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, um, that's funny because I feel like what I've heard about Maurice Sendak, he would have loved that story. <laughs> Grace swallows her pride and you know lets her daughter dictate what they read at bedtime to an extent. So one of the things that I do with my daughter, uh, because diversity and culture is so important to me, is that, you know, for a while what I was doing was at bedtime, we would read three books. And I would be like, okay, if I read a book with a white character, then we have to have at least one of the other books be a book with a minority character. And it was so hard. It was just so hard. Between between finding actual books with minority characters and then finding books that she would actually like and let me read. I mean, it was just so hard. I mean, I found there's there there are some amazing books, you know, out there, but so many of them um a lot of the the books are about like the civil rights or they're very heavy and she just wouldn't wouldn't have anything to do with them. Like she wants things like rude cakes, you know, like she wants really, like, really, like, goofy stories. And it made me think um, that's kind of one of the reasons why um, there's a myth about diverse books not selling. It's because while they're very important, um, they're they're books that are easier to be read in a classroom than they are to be read trying to put your kid to sleep at night. Those issuey kinds of books, though, they can lead to some amazing exchanges with kids. I mean, awkward and difficult exchanges, but but they make an impact. So like, here's something that happened with Grace and her daughter. Last month, Grace was reading to Hazel at bedtime. It was a picture book by Faith Ringgold called Tar Beach. The story takes place in 1939, and it's about an eight-year-old girl who lives in Harlem. The girl goes up on the rooftop of her family's apartment building and lies there on a blanket, and she dreams that she can be free to go wherever she wants. She imagines herself being lifted up by the stars and flying over the city and just owning everything, like the the skyscrapers, the George Washington Bridge, the Union Building that her father's helping to build but won't be able to enter because he's Black. And my daughter was like, what's that? What does that mean? And it was, um, I was like, well, you know, before, a, a while ago, people used to think that 
black people were not as good as, uh, you know, white people. They used to think that people who didn't look white were not as good. So they didn't let them into things like the union, which is kind of like a club for workers. And, you know, I could tell that she she wasn't really getting it. To be fair, her daughter is four. And then um, the next night, uh, we were reading the book. Uh, she brought it up but in a way like off, like out of, out of the blue. And she said, what is it that we don't, that we know now that we didn't know then? And I had no idea what mm-hmm. she was talking about uh, mm-hmm. because we were, we were like at a different part. And I was like, I, uh, I don't know. And then she got really frustrated with me that I didn't know what she was talking about. And she started to cry. Later, when Grace closed the book, she figured out Hazel had been talking about the union thing. She tried to tell Hazel again about how not all people used to be treated the same, even people who looked like mommy. But by then, it, it was too late. That The moment had passed. Hazel was too upset and didn't want to talk about it anymore. Weeks later, now, she, she still doesn't want to read Tar Beach. Grace says she might try and pick up another book with similar themes, sneak it back in, like her own mom did with the Chinese fairy tales. Grace says... This is exactly why we need a range of books with diverse characters. We need serious, and we need silly. And Grace's books, they have that range. Grace says she wants there to be so many multicultural books in the world that we no longer have to classify them as multicultural books. They'll just be books. But, you know, it's it's complicated. Uh, There was a study that was done where uh, they showed that in children's books— the number of Asian authors and illustrators have increased, but the number of books about Asians has decreased. There's a lot more Asian authors, but they're not writing Asian characters. Um, hmm. So it's interesting. So, um, do you have to walk a fine line with your daughter of like trying to ingrain like her Asian heritage in her? And not force it on her? Because I know, like, when you were a child, you had a hard time with your mom, like, what felt to you like your mom forcing, like, a Chinese doll on you? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's it's really different because um, to me it's so... It's so important because she's only half Asian. And so, like, most of the time she could really pass as white, I think, to me, you know? And... um, and that's a really interesting thing for me because, you know, as somebody who who spent all of her childhood, like I spent all of my childhood wishing that I was white, but really being Asian. And I look at her and I realize if she wishes to be white, she really could, you know, pass or, or really identify that way. And it's a really, uh, I, I have so many mixed feelings about that, you know, um, like part of me is like, good. I want her to have those advantages. And part of me feels kind of like really sad and really like, um, like, you know, it's like that heartbreaking feeling. Uh, so I try really hard to, to, um, make Asian things seem like something wonderful. Um, like the moon festival was, was recent and uh, I went into her class, you know, and I talked, you know, she's only in preschool, but like I went to her class and I talked to all the kids about um, the moon festival. And I, you know, and I made like um, little marshmallow 
bunnies, you know, because I couldn't give them mooncakes because there's like nuts and like all the, the <laughs> there's like nuts and gluten free. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to make marshmallow bunnies. And, and um, at this age, I guess I just really want her to feel like, you know, we're, we're Asian and we get to celebrate the moon festival and it's so great, you know, so um, it's very, it's hard for me too, because I can't really pass down the language because I never really learned well, you know, and uh, I would not want her to learn Chinese the way I speak it. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it's like, and, and a lot of times, you know, honestly, even though I, I've immersed myself as much as I can in my heritage, you know, there's always times where I feel like an imposter in my own heritage, you know, so, so it's hard sometimes for me to, to pass it on, to feel like I want to pass it on to her too. Grace is passing it on. And not just to her daughter. Lots of kids see themselves in Grace's books, whether they're Asian or not. Kids all across America have put on stage performances of her novel, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. Grace heard that at one of those schools, the girls were fighting over who would get to play the main character, Min Lee. Just like decades ago, Grace and her friends all wanted to play Dorothy. We talked a lot about art today, but you didn't get to see any of it. We've got a whole page on our website full of Grace's art. You can see how her work evolved from white princesses to Chinese girls on adventures. Grace's latest book is called When the Sea Turned to Silver. It's a big story made up of lots of little stories. And there's one that Grace had to edit out of the book just to keep things from getting too complicated. Uh, but I love this story so much. It like broke my heart to cut to cut it out of the book. So I decided to take that story and um, I illustrated it and made a little booklet. We are giving away that little booklet. Ten of them, in fact. Here is how you enter to win. Go find our Twitter page. We're at Longest Shortest. On that page, we've got a pinned tweet with a quote from Grace Lynn's new book. All we need you to do is retweet that pinned tweet. That's it. Then you are automatically entered to win one of these special limited edition booklets from Grace. If you need those instructions again, go find them on our website. We've also got a list there of Grace's favorite Asian American children's literature. So go to longestshortesttime.com, check out the post for this episode. That's episode 99. While you're there, leave a comment. Tell us the surprising ways that you've connected with your heritage. And if you want to hear more stories about race and culture, check out the Sporkful podcast. Our friends over there just launched a thoughtful, provocative series on race, culture, and food. It's called Who Is This Restaurant For? You won't look at restaurants the same way after hearing these stories. Find the Sporkful wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced by me, Hillary Frank, and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and the Reverend John Delore. Our theme music is by the Batteries Duo. We get editorial support from Amory Baldonado and Antonia Acatunde. Production help this week from Lily Sullivan. I will be back next week with a brand new episode. People, it is our 100th episode. And we figured, what better way to celebrate than to talk to some 100-year-olds? When you're a 100 they seem to think they have to talk louder because you can't hear. I mean, you shouldn't be able to hear if you're 100 years old. 
That is actually my first time hearing this tape. I've never heard it before because our producer, Abigail, went out and did the interviews. She says she wants to surprise me. So I'm looking forward to this one just as much as you are. Make sure you're subscribed to The Longest Shortest Time in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And get the show early by subscribing to our newsletter. Do that at longestshortesttime.com. Enter your email in the little box on the homepage. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. We're especially looking for stories about pets and kids, pets and parents. I've got a funny one about my cat, but you know, always send us anything surprising in general about your family. Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. What's up? This is Hannibal Burris, and I got a new podcast coming out soon on the Ill Wolf Network. It's called Handsome Rambler. It's going to be me talking about life on the road, sports, relationships, philosophy, books. Anything can happen on the Handsome Rambler. It's going to be an extravaganza. Check it out. The Handsome Rambler coming soon on the Ill Wolf Network. You know what it is. Stand up. You sing Earwolf? Yeah. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.